0: Good morning. Are you awake? Okay. I am too. That's a good thing. Um, I love that last song, We Trust You, and it says this, your ways are always higher than our own. Do we believe that? His ways are radically different than our own. So this morning, we're going to look at a text. It's a big transition. And we're going to look at what I've entitled expectations. So if you have an outline, it looks like this. You can grab it. And uh, because oftentimes we have different expectations. I'll get into that in just a minute. By the way, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And so glad you came out this morning and trying to avoid the heat. I totally understand it um, because it's going to be a hot one today. But anyways, today we're going to tackle a subject um, that John has a question, and it deals with expectations. But let me back up for just a moment and tell you where we are in this book. In chapters 9 and 10, we've been looking at that Jesus has absolute authority, not just some, but absolute authority over everything. Then he also talks to us in chapter 10 about he had equipped the disciples to go and minister. And then last week, we were challenged greatly on this. You and I must love Jesus more than anything else, including a family member, a child, a friend. We have to love Jesus more than anything. And that's challenging. And Jesus challenges us often in Scripture. So as we tackle this, join me this morning as I pray, and we'll dig into this text. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for a great time to sing praises to you. I think of that song that we need to trust you. Our world is going crazy, and oftentimes we we don't trust you, and we should. So this morning, as we look at this text about a man asking a question, I pray that you give us clarity. I pray that you challenge us to our core. I pray that my words will honor your text and most of all bring you glory. Lord, I just pray for your word to go out and help us to learn. In your very precious name of your son, we pray and all God's people said amen expectations we all have them so as i was prepping i realized some of some of the times we have what we call unrealistic expectations so i want to give you some of those and then i want to give you some of what i call some of the christian expectations the very first one is this everyone should like me and if you haven't read scripture that's not going to be true. Even if you've lived life for some time, you realize not everybody likes you. Once you become a believer, oftentimes people don't like you because you live radically different. People should drive right. It's interesting. I heard a story recently. Um, a friend of mine was telling me this story about this cop pulled over this lady and he uh, she said, hold on, I'm not done texting. And he said, that's why I'm pulling you over. And she said, wait, just one more minute. And then she got a ticket. You know, people, there's some dumb drivers out there. And I was riding with a guy about a month and a half ago, and he's complaining about how everybody else is driving, and he was driving terrible. So sometimes we expect people to drive right. Sometimes we think this, people need to know what I'm trying to say. People should always agree with me. You expect others to change for you. You know, you cannot control how other people behave. You expect them to change for, is usually very unreasonable some expect perfection. Hope you realize by now nobody's perfect, including you. Accepting this will help you move forward about yourself and others. Let me give you a couple of Christian expectations. We won't be persecuted for our faith. And I'm like, what Bible are they reading to come up with that one? You know, when you tend to follow Christ, Christ says you will be persecuted. Some of you are thinking, I should have stayed at home. Jesus will return in our lifetime. How many of you have heard that? Well, I hear it all the time. Do you know who else heard, believed that? It was Paul. That was 2,000 years ago. To me, that's not a bad expectation, but you got to be realistic. It might not happen, or it might. Life will go smooth and comfortable. A pastor friend of mine said to me, we have a theology of comfort, and that's not in the Bible either. Life isn't always smooth and isn't always comfortable. Life should be fair. We're going to look at a guy that's unjustly put into prison. Life isn't always fair. Sometimes we expect life to be easy. Questions about our expectations and are they realistic is something you should think about often. One author stated this, unrealistic expectations are a yoke to slavery. Managing expectation is a very important part of life. It's a great question to consider. It's also a great indicator if you're a prideful person or a humble person. Meaning this, are you in control or is Christ in control of your life? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. He says, therefore, prepare your mind. Have your mind prepared. And it's the idea of realistic living, realistic expectations. And why I'm telling you all this is The text we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 11 is the Jews, the followers of Christ, the disciples, and John the Baptist, they all had an unrealistic expectation. They all believed that Jesus should come and not only save them, but to be king right now. So you got to understand that when you look at this text that we're going to tackle today. They expected him to be king now in the first century. But let me give you some background because the question is going to come from a guy named John the Baptist, which I would say most of you are familiar with. I want to give you just a little bit of background just to get you caught up. And it will help you understand what's going on in the text. He was born to an elderly couple. Zachariah was a priest and Elizabeth. He lived in the wilderness. Most believed he lived in the Qumran community with the Essenes. The Essenes were scribes, and what they did is they took the Old Testament and they copied it. And you might be going, ah, I don't know why that's important. It's really important because the Essenes are the ones... That in 1946 they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which validates our Old Testament. So they were copyists, they knew the Word of God. Most believe John the Baptist grew up in that time frame and in with that group. You can actually go to Israel today and read the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're amazing to look at and read. Flavius Josephus, a historian, a Jewish historian, said this. He, he actually lived between 37 and 100 AD. He said this, Herod slew him, referring to John the Baptist, who was a good man. He commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as righteous, righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. A secular historian is bragging about John the Baptist. John had a mission, and it's a subject of prophecy. He is the forerunner to Christ. He was known throughout the land of Judea, huge area. People knew who John the Baptist was. He was a unique guy. He wore weird clothes. The weirdness in the clothes remind us of 2 Kings one eight. That's how Elijah dressed. He ate some weird food. I'm going to show you a picture of some of the things he ate. One was called a bald locust, and the other one was called was honey. And I would say most of us would we like honey. I don't know a lot of people that eat locusts, but this is a particular locust. This is actually one that you can eat. It's called a bald locust. It fits the criteria in the book of Leviticus. So John knew the law and he knew what he could eat. And I'm gonna tell you, even if you put chocolate on that, I'm still not gonna eat that locust. I'll let some of the young guys try it. Doesn't sound good to me. He was a powerful preacher. And now I wanna give you the context of what's going on before we jump into our outline. John is placed in prison because he stated the truth about Herod. Herod took his brother's wife and married her. The brother was still alive. And John said, that is wrong. And Herod said, basically, you can't tell me that. I'm going to throw you in prison. He's thrown into prison very unjustly. Can you imagine? That could actually happen today. Could you imagine somebody, if if a gay couple got married and, and the pastor said, that is wrong, our society would probably go after that pastor. John is a man of convictions. But John's life is radically changed. He's now preaching in prison. The disciples and John the Baptist expected Jesus to become their king right now. And this is a big turning point in the Gospels. In Matthew 11, the Pharisees are now in complete opposition to Jesus and his message. Jesus is now focused on the lost Gentiles. So there's a shift in ministry Jesus has prepared the disciples for this opposition and their persecution. John's in prison. Matthew eleven twenty 20 says, The culture rejected Jesus' ministry because they did not repent, even after a multitude of miracles. You need to hear that. Faith in Christ isn't just because of miracles. Miracles validated who Jesus was. And they had already forgotten these miracles. And they're rejecting the message. The Pharisees are saying he's not the Messiah because they expected a king, somebody that would rule and reign now. So John's in prisons, Jewish citizens are rejecting Jesus' message and there's great opposition going on. See, they looked for a political deliverance from Roman domination. The disciples and the followers all expected Christ to be their king. So let's look at the text. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And we're going to start with the shocking question, verses 1 through 3. He said this, when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus just finished instructing the disciples. I want you to catch that. The disciples completed their training. Now they're on the mission to go and make disciples. You know what the church is about? We are to equip the saints for ministry. All of you in this room are supposed to be equipped to minister to another person. We are to come here and worship together, but also to become equipped. We are are called to go and make disciples. We are called to serve. We we're called to find out our gifts, and we we're supposed to use them for His glory. So the disciples depart. Then we get to this question. Now, let me give you a little background on some of what we call the rabbitic commentaries. In the first century, oftentimes, Jewish scholars thought there might be two different messiahs, one that would save you and one that would come as king. Now, the disciples, including John the Baptist and a lot of other followers, they all realized that Jesus came to save. But John's asking what we call a legitimate question. He's going, wait, are you the one also to be king? See, his question is not about doubting. His question is about clarification. It is a great question. So John's most likely doing this. He had a different expectation, and perhaps John thought the Messiah would have ushered in the kingdom by this time. Perhaps John thought Jesus surely would have made an open and bold declaration about his power and his might at this point. But John's question tends to shock us because he knew Christ. He said, this is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He got it. And we're all benefactors of that. We are grateful that Christ came and paid for your sins and my sins. We get it. But John's saying, wait, are you going to be the king right now? John pointed everybody to Christ. Notice he sent two disciples or disciples to Jesus. Everybody that John discipled, he eventually said, follow Christ. When you disciple somebody, you're helping them to get to know Christ. That's what John did his whole life. Let's look at the answer, point number two. Jesus answers their question with facts. Follow along with me in verse four. And Jesus answered, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news. Preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the first answer John's going to give, he's giving a two-part answer. The first one is, go tell John what you hear and what you see when you see hearing or hear he's talking about what did Jesus preach about what was he teaching that right there would validate that he's the messiah do you realize all the prophet i mean all the pharisees the priests the lawyers would come they would challenge Jesus and they got to the point of saying we can't take this guy on we always lose You can't take the God of the universe on and think you're going to win. So he says, the teaching and preaching, tell John that. Then he says, also the miracles. The reason why he mentioned the miracles is because in the Old Testament, there were some prophecies that were required to be fulfilled by Christ, especially in Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. And guess who fulfilled all those prophecies? Jesus. Jesus, he he gave sight to the blind. He helped the lame to walk. He actually healed them. And leopards were cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised to life. The poor hear the gospel. And then he ends with Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Direct reference. To John the Baptist, he's not offended. See, they expected a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and the military might. And that was a good expectation, but that's not what they got. But instead, they saw Jesus, this humble teacher and amazing healer. See, Jesus, by his choice of words and works, and his timing, Jesus challenged their expectations. And so the people were wondering, and John asked a great question. Let me give you a little sideline here. When you pray and you don't understand what's going on, ask God to give you clarity. Clarity from his word, and in your prayer time. Because I can tell you this, we don't understand everything that's going on. His ways are higher. He knows what's going on. But oftentimes, even in my own life, when I don't understand what's going on or why things are happening the way they're happening, it is such a great way to get on your knees and go, God, just give me clarity. I don't understand what's going on. See, John the Baptist is doing the exact same thing that Mary did, Do you recall when Mary encountered an angel and the angel says, hey, you're going to have a child. She didn't doubt. You know what she did? Hey, I need some clarity on this. (laughs) I'm not married. I've never been with a man. How's this going to happen? And the angel gave clarity. Same thing's happening here. John's saying, I know you're the one that's coming to save, but aren't you the one that's supposed to be king? He just wants clarity. See, the thing that we we need to understand, the scripture clearly states it because we're past the first century, is this there's two phases to setting up the kingdom. The first one is one we all love. He paid for our sins, our past, our present, and future sins. That's why he went to the cross. And he is our king, but he's in heaven and we're in a foreign land. He's coming back to be king here. I don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody does. But that's what we're waiting for. So there's two phases to this. So I totally understand why the disciples and why John's asking this question. You remember even John and James were arguing who's going to sit in the right and the left. They're waiting for a kingdom now. So John's in prison, and he wants to know, are you going to be the king now? This doesn't affect his faith. And the reason I know that is because the next section answers that. Look at this next answer. Jesus talks about John. It's the second part of the answer. Follow along with me in verse 7. He says, As they went away, as the disciples went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? Great question. A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. We call that the forerunner. Truly, I say to you, among those born women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophet and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, ears to hear, let him hear. This is he whom is written. Matthew noted that the ministry of the Messiah's herald, the forerunner, John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Christ, was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. What did you go in the wilderness to see? It's a great question. People went out to find John and hear his message. They were not looking for a reed. A reed is somebody that was fickle, swayed by every type of teaching. No, you went out to see one that was sturdy, not weak. John was a man of convictions. They were not looking for a man in soft clothes. Rich with no backbone is the idea in Greek, meaning they'll do whatever it takes to make money and they'll compromise on their faith. No, they went out to see a man who had standards, who would not compromise. You know, he never retracted his statement about Herod. He said, this is wrong. What you did is wrong, and they threw him in prison. Eventually, he lost his head over that. John did not conform to the worldly standards. They went out to see a prophet. And Jesus Jesus even stated, you went out to see more than a prophet. And it's a reference to he is Elijah, the forerunner that's mentioned in Malachi. D.A. Carson stated this, though some might put John in bad light because of his seeming doubts regarding Jesus. Jesus himself spoke quite highly of John. John was often bore witness of Jesus. Now Jesus bears witness of John. The point is, John was solid in his faith. He was steady. He was not shaken easily by the winds. He was sober. He lived a disciplined life. He was not in love with the world. He did not follow after the world. John was a servant. He was a prophet of God. John was sent. He had a special message, and he was willing to state it with truth. This is a great person to study, it's a great person to teach your kids about. I love doing character studies. And looking at how men and women live for God in the Bible. John's one of those that I love studying because he stood firm for what he believed. Then it says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. We're good with that. The second part challenges us yet on this because it says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? That's the question you should be asking yourself. True greatness is always based on God's values, not, not secular society's values. Jesus himself described the true, nat- true nature of greatness as always linked to humility. John the Baptist was humble. In John 3.30, it says this, he must increase I must decrease. Jesus did not intend to demean John or John's faith. He intended it instead to be a comment reinforcing the kingdom values that were so difficult for his audience to accept. Values that run contrary to the world's values. And we struggle with that. Jesus says, these are the values you will have in the kingdom of heaven. These are the values I want you to live by. We get it. The gospel is easy to understand. It's easy for us to accept Christ. Where we struggle is when Christ wants to radically change us into a saint. That's when we rebel. See, they were struggling with the values. John's values were amazing and they're values we should all strive for. He was humble. He was a man of convictions. He was a man of integrity. His word is what it meant. He didn't have to change it. He discipled. He totally got the great commission. He was a disciple, and he made disciples. He was sober, meaning he wasn't addicted to anything the world was offering him. He had a clear head. He let the Holy Spirit guide and direct him. He was a servant. See, John just needed clarification about Christ. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? I get that you're going to save us. He's the one that said, this is the suffering servant, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He got that. He's saying now, And he got his answer. So back up a little bit. He in this text, the disciples, they're out ministering. John's in prison. He says, I've got a question. I want clarity on it. It's a great question. He gets an answer in two ways. You saw my teaching, you saw how I preached, you saw the miracles. And then he validated John by saying, You are the greatest one ever born of a woman, and said, the least will be in the kingdom. You have to have those characteristics. He's saying, you're already in the kingdom. So he's bragging about John, but then he has a radical change at the end of this chapter. The disciples have left. They went back to report to John. And it says crowds. In Greek, it's interesting. In this pericope or this section, the crowds is plural. There's different groups there listening to Jesus preach. And he says, I've got to talk to you now. And he's going to talk to him about why didn't you listen to John's message and why didn't you listen to my message, Jesus' message. So follow along with me. And number four, expecting the society to be righteous. Have you ever heard the statement, people are generally good? How many of you ever heard that? I've heard it way too many times in my life. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we're evil to our core. That's why people do dumb things. Listen to this. Jesus is going to dig into that issue in verse 16. He says, follow along with me, but what shall I compare this generation... It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is justified by her deeds. So he's basically saying that's what society was saying, Jesus is saying about John and himself. Jesus offers this amazing explanation and he uses a simile. It's a word picture. You will always notice it, it will have as or like in it. And he says, This generation is a fickle generation is what we get the word from. And it, it's, it's the idea of being swayed by everything. Anything that's happening in society, we just go and do it. But John and Jesus did not play their game. They decided we're not going to go along with the craziness in the society. Jesus makes the point that the Jews rejected both messages. See, John's message was judgment. That's why it's expressed in eating and drinking, not eating and drinking. It's the idea of what we call the old hellfire and brimstone preaching. Some of us are old enough to know what I'm referring to. And that's where a preacher would say, you got to get right or you're going to hell. And by the end of the sermon, you would come forward and get right. Then there was another message that Jesus preached, and it was about joy and hope, about a spending eternity with Christ in heaven. Both messages need to be presented today. The truth is there's a hell and there's a heaven. They both have to be preached. But this text is saying to us that the society rejected both messages. They were done. They're going, no, nah, I don't I don't want to believe in what you guys are preaching. Both proclaimed the gospel, and the generation rejected it because they were immature. They refused the message. That's a sad statement. They refuse the message. And it gets down to this. They did not want to change the way they live. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in our generation. People don't want to change the way they live. And so they reject the message, the ultimate message that will radically change your life forever. So let me give you some applications this morning, or I could keep going on but I know you got to get out there into that 109 degree weather. First one is this, consider your expectations and ask yourself, are they realistic? Are they realistic? You know, John needed clarification. He had an expectation. He just needed clarification. So oftentimes I say this too, pray that way. When you don't understand why things aren't going according to your plan, <laughs> you might need to get on your knees and say, God, I'm going to need clarity. I don't get it. I don't get why my world's changing and going crazy. Help me understand it, but you got to get into his word to get the answers. Second thing is, unrealistic expectations are a yoke of slavery and I want you to catch this, is it becomes a form of pride, not a form of humility. Meaning, pride is the ultimate sin. That's what got us in our trouble. Christ asked us to be humble, not prideful. When we have expectations that are not realistic, we get upset when it doesn't go our way. And that's our pride getting in the way. Third thing is John the Baptist is one of the greatest examples of how not to live like the world. He lived a disciplined life. He was not controlled by money or status. We need to learn from his example. He was a strong and humble Christian leader and he spoke the truth. Number four, this one will challenge you. Stop expecting society to believe like you and to act like you. That's a challenge because our society is going crazy. We used to have what we call a Judeo-Christian ethic in America, and it's being dissolved in front of our faces. I think that's why some of us have the expectation, Lord, come now, They rejected John's message, and they rejected Jesus' message. Here's the thing that will give you comfort. God will deal with the injustice. He's in control. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I I thank you for John, who asked questions like we should ask. And he he got clarity from, from Christ's word. I pray for us too. When we have times that we're struggling and we just need clarity, I pray that you will guide and direct us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we will ask questions and go, Lord, just give me clarity. I'm trying to understand. But help us not to doubt you. Help us to follow you. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it. In your very precious name of your son, Jesus The one who has the ultimate answers is who we pray to. Amen. Well, twice a month we take communion. And communion is just an amazing time to be reminded of what Christ did for us. And um, if you grabbed a cup, go ahead and peel off the bottom part. And uh, there's a, a chip and... I I still have no idea what it is, and I used to be a chemist. Um, But it represents something that is so important. It's, It's a great way to remind us of what Christ did for us. I'm so glad he established it. I'm so glad that we do it as a reminder, and we do it as a body of believers together to take it. But Paul also exhorts us to examine ourselves. And this examining is interesting. He's saying, I don't want you to take it in an unworthy manner. Basically, he's saying, will you evaluate where you are with Christ? Are you living for him? Take it. And it gives you what I call a time to just self-evaluate. The cup is this amazing reminder of Of what Christ accomplished on the cross. You know, He went to the cross and He he paid for your past, your present, and your future sins. There's people in Israel today at the Wailing Wall, and they are praying that they can build the temple to start doing sacrifices again. And Jesus says, No, I've done it once and for all, and this is why we do this. This is our reminder. And so he gives us this little chip or piece of bread to say, this is my body. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it together. I'm going to pray and then we'll take it. And the body represented his life. And he says, I'm willing to go to the cross in your place and in the place of me. So join me as I pray. Lord, thank you so much for going to the cross where you gave your life once and for all for our sins. Thank you for doing it. Let's take together. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is going to pay the price for your sins. He also said, this is my, the cup of the new covenant of my blood. See, blood doesn't need to be shed again. His blood covered it all. And that's why we take this. So grab the cup, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll take together. Lord, thank you so much for shedding your blood in our place. Thank you for ratifying the new covenant that we no longer need to use animals to sacrifice. Thank you for atoning for our sins. In your very precious name, amen. Let's take. Lord, thank you for this great reminder. I pray for us today that we will make you the most important thing in our lives. So go with us. Prepare our hearts now as we sing. In your very precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.